0: You may be seated. Well it's Christmas, which means it's time for all those insufferable best of the year lists, right? Aren't they oppressive? The New York Times alone, it declared the 54 best songs, the 17 most striking homes, the, the ten most idyllic destinations of twenty-nine, they They published lists of the best actors and best dance, best theater, best art, the best movies, best albums, best TV shows. They told us about the top 10 new restaurants, new recipes, and the best wine moments of the year, whatever that is. The Times even listed the 10 best Los Angeles dishes of 2019. Seriously, did they get to do that? The list I hate the most of all is the 100 best books of the year. Another year... Another 98 to 100 books I'm supposed to have read but haven't. Another year, another long addition to this annual and expanding measure of my inadequacy. Anybody else have this experience? Maybe it's actually true that everything, even the New York Times, really is all about me. Fortunately, if I were to compile a much shorter list of my own favorite books of 2019, Lewis Hyde's A Primer for Forgetting would be near the top. And the premise of this book is that the capacity to forget may be even more essential to being human than remembering is. This world and our histories, they pile up in a hurry around us, moment by moment. Life is a barrage, not only of unread books and unseen movies, but of sights and sounds and smells, conversations and encounters with people, places and things. If we weren't constantly letting go of almost everything we experience we would each of us go quite literally mad, wouldn't we? We have to forget if we're to live. That insight might take a bit of the pressure off this urge to prove ourselves always by being and doing and knowing just a little bit more. But what if something similar could even be said of God? We like to imagine God without limits A God who's omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, all the wonderful omni-things, right? But those words are not actually in the Bible. Even if it suggests God can know and do and be a lot more than any of us can. Some might even argue that there's a lot more divine incarnation than omnipotence in the Bible. We really will get to the Bible and maybe even the story of the Nativity in a minute. But... There's a page in a primer for forgetting that caught my Christmas attention in particular. Lewis Hyde tells of the people of the Trobriand Islands off the coast of New Guinea, who have a curious cosmology. They see the universe as this vast disembodied space filled with energy and cosmic minds, minds that are all-seeing, all-knowing, and all-powerful, able to manipulate the universe's energy to whatever ends they desire. Sounds pretty much in line with everyone else who assigns all those omni-words to God, right? But these cosmic minds have a problem. Boredom. Cosmic boredom. They can do anything they can imagine, but since they have no needs, their power has no purpose. They may know everything there is to know, but that just means there's nothing left to think about. Which means they're really, really bored. So the cosmic minds invented a game to entertain themselves. It's called life. To play, you have to be born as a human being. Which means you have to forget all that cosmic knowledge and take in only what can be known through the body. A human being, according to the myth, is someone who's abandoned the boring surfeit of knowledge so as to come alive. It's not exactly the Gospel of Luke but it doesn't feel entirely foreign to the nativity either, does it? All the characters who matter most in the Christmas story are not the ones who've read all the books and can do all the things, are they? At the heart of this story are people of the severest limitations. and God seems to be one of them. What Luke tells us and what subsequent generations of Christian theologians will insist is that God is present to this world as the body of a baby. And what most Christians have insisted on ever since is not that the infant Jesus already knows every last word of all hundred books on the New York Times Best of 2019 list. No, what Christians have said is that God is present in all God's fullness in this child who is just as fully human. No flinching from either truth. It's not that a little bit of God's self is leaking just a little into humanity at the nativity, but that God's fullness is immediately here, birthed into being as Mary's child, who truly knows only what can be known through the body. When's the last time you imagined God taking in the world without language and with far less processing power than even you carry around in your little skull? The people around the Christ child They're lacking as well, of course. If you have a lot of knowledge and a lot of power in this world, if you can be wherever you want to be, you do not end up giving birth in a barn and laying your child in a manger, do you? No, Mary and Joseph and Jesus are all way down at the weak and vulnerable and unknowing end of the world while the emperor decrees his registration, so maybe he'll have a nice long list of all the people subject to his control. Maybe pay attention to who makes the lists in our stories and why. And that multitude of heavenly hosts? Well, they appear not to the emperor, but to shepherds. The lowest caste of laborers. The story were set in, my, in the town of my childhood. Maybe the angels appear to people in hair nets working the graveyard ship at the chicken processing plant. The ones who can't get off for Christmas Eve. That's where the glory shows up in the story. As for Mary, in our minds and in our art, she usually has the body of a 22-year-old and the emotional maturity of a 62-year-old. But she could have been betrothed as young as age 12. Which means she wasn't only poor and female, but she was almost certainly young. Maybe what we'd call adolescent. My wife, Ardell, once pointed out to me that when Mary so famously said yes to God at the Annunciation, she was probably at about an age when human beings seemed hardwired to say yes to all kinds of dangerous and terrifying things. Terrifying to all us older and more responsible adults, at least, right? I mean, would you cast a teenager or even a tween as the one to make this pivotal choice for the redemption of the world? Then again, would someone who'd accumulated a little more worldly wisdom and experience have ever had the nerve to say, yes, let it be with me according to your word? Detail after detail in this familiar old story drives home the truth that God's ways are not ours. And the shape of the story of our redemption begins with the divine letting go of almost everything we associate with being God. A forgetting, if you will. Or in the words of St. Paul in Philippians, an emptying. The story of the nativity can disrupt and reform our images of God, even as it reshapes our image of what it means to be human as well. Because maybe you, like me, think what God really wants of us is always to be just a little bit more than we are. We need to have gained a little more knowledge or experience or influence or age, not even necessarily to feed our egos, but maybe just to do a little more good in a world in which there's so much good that needs doing. But that world, that world of all you might have known or done or been, that world can pile up around us in a hurry. There will always be infinitely more of what's undone to confess, even for the most energetic of doers. But the Christmas story, at its core, is a story not of God adding superpowers to ordinary human beings in order to save us, but of one of the fullness of God coming among us as an infant with nearly no knowledge or power at all. It's about God using human beings, severely limited creatures that we are, to help carry out the plan of God's redemption if we could truly take just this one Christmas truth in. Maybe we could also begin to see the world as God sees it. Maybe we would not see the very young as people only of potential, but as full members of the human family who have a perspective and a place in our lives that are utterly needed. Maybe we'd see our elders not as people who were relevant to the world once upon a time, but as whole human beings whose perspective and priorities might rearrange our own if we paid them the attention God does. The same could be said of the poor, the marginalized, the undereducated, the unimportant by any standard we choose. Maybe also of the salesman who fails to reach his quota again, the therapist who can't ease a client's pain. Maybe even the priest who still can't quite preach the perfect Christmas Eve sermon. So if you've come here tonight full of doubts, feelings of inadequacy. If you're nursing a dashed hope or two and feel like you'll never read enough books or visit enough places or do whatever it is you think makes for a successful human life. Well if any of that's true, even in a corner of your heart, the story we've come to hear again and learn to trust a little more, this is your story. Because it is a sacred story that says Not only did God come to redeem a life that looks just like yours, it says God still uses lives like yours, imperfect and incomplete as they are, to bring redeeming love into this world. Which means that tonight, the most glorious, let it be with me according to your word, might be yours.